You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to get started with this. Uh, so this is uh, um, the fourth and final session of uh, Taboo Judaism, which, <laughs> in which we've been uh, um, exploring some of the most um, uh, um, out-of-bounds or supposedly out-of-bounds topics uh, um, uh, for... Uh, uh, for Jews to study, and today is what we can learn from Judaism's greatest heretic. And uh, so when I made that title, I actually didn't mean for it to be such a mystery, because I figured everybody knew who Judaism's greatest heretic was, but it turns out that there are a lot of opinions about what Judaism's greatest heretic, who Judaism's greatest heretic is. So uh, of the opinions that I've heard so far, I've heard Spinoza, I've heard Harold Kushner, um... Uh, you know, the, anyway, uh, what's what's funny about it is that uh, in every age there are um, uh, different heretics, um, depending on what the orthodoxies are of that age, um, and some people who you might imagine um, are, uh, are are really not heretical were branded as heretics in, in their time, right? So Maimonides was branded by some to be a heretic. Um, the Baal Shem Tov was branded by many to be a heretic. Many of the Hasidic rabbis were branded by others to be heretics. Um, so, uh, um, you don't think about that so much in Judaism. Uh, you, you know, it's, it seems like more of a Catholic thing, right? But, uh, um, or a, uh, or, or a Muslim thing, maybe in some ways, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie thing. But, um, but we, we have it too. We have, uh, um, uh, that too. Um, there are different terms for heretics uh, in Judaism, depending on what you, what the kind of heresy uh, is that you have. And one of the most common ones is an apikoros, um, which is uh, um, the the rabbinic version of the Greek, uh, an Epicurean. Um, so someone who ascribes to the philosophy of Epicurus, um, as opposed to say the philosophy of uh, of, of Aristotle. Or Plato, um, which uh, which many of the rabbis, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, adapted and adopted into their into their system. Um, we talked about that a little bit last time. Um, so the heretic that we're going to look at today is one of these is is an earlier heretic, right? Is uh, very early on in in um, in Jewish history um, during the uh, uh, rabbinic period during Roman rule. Um, and he's uh, branded by some uh, to be an apikoros, an Epicurean. Um, although we'll see in his story, it's a little bit unclear exactly what his heresy is. And I'm actually a little bit less focused on the heresy uh, uh, than I am about uh, the story that surrounds him. Okay, um, And it's a fairly lengthy story in the Talmud. It's also in a number of other places in rabbinic literature. The Talmud, Babylonian Talmud's version is probably not the original one. Um, and, uh, as we go on, I may point out some places, uh, that, that, that indicate why it's not original. So it's probably a much later version of the story, but it's the most famous version of the story. Actually, that may not even be true. The most famous version of the story nowadays is probably the book by, uh, Milton Steinberg, As a Driven Leaf. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, strong feelings about it. Well, anyway, As a Driven Leaf, uh, for those of you who read it, that might give away who the, uh, heretic is. Um, is a uh, rabbi named Elisha ben Abuya. Elisha ben Abuya. 
Um, so Alicia Benabuya was a, um, uh, a student of, uh, or a contemporary of, uh, Rabbi Akiva. Um, uh, so lived uh, after the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, in uh, um, um, the first century or so um, of the of the common era. So let's jump into his story. Okay, so uh, I'm on page uh, uh, ninety in the text that we're looking at, uh, the very bottom of the page. Yeah, uh, well, the very bottom of the text, not the footnotes. Okay, so the it starts like this: Our rabbis taught, um, uh, which means that this is a. Um, so actually, let me give a little bit more background before we go in here, okay? So um, this is coming in a discussion of a Mishnah. Uh, the Talmud always comments on, on Mishnah, which is an earlier rabbinic uh, uh, text. Talmud is a later rabbinic text, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. And the Mishnah um, talks about all of the things that Jews aren't supposed to study. Right, so you're not supposed to uh, um, uh, you're not supposed to inquire about um, you know what happened before creation. You're not supposed to inquire about you know what's above the heavens. You're not supposed to inquire about what's below the earth. You're not supposed to inquire about all. You're not supposed to study certain kinds of literature in uh, in small groups. You're not supposed to study right uh, study certain kinds of literature at all. Um, so that's the that's the Mishnah that this is uh, discussing from uh, Chaktit Chagiga, um, and then it brings in a, a, a story, a, a fairly early rabbinic tradition. So our rabbis taught four men entered the garden. The Hebrew word for the garden is pardes, which is actually not a Hebrew word at all. It's a, a, a Greek word or maybe a Persian word for paradise. Um, it also can mean an orchard or something like that. Um, but uh, here it's probably referring to heaven. Right, paradise. Four men entered paradise. Namely, they were Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so four rabbis entered paradise, uh, and it gives the names of those four rabbis: Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Okay, of those, one is a pseudonym. Okay, the pseudonym is Acher, which is a Hebrew word meaning other, the other. Um, so Acher, of course, as we'll see a little bit later on, is a pseudonym for this rabbi, Elisha Ben Abuya. We'll learn how he gets that name, Other. They don't want to say his name. They don't want to say his name, right? Because, uh, it, you know, it's, it's like Voldemort, right? He who may not be named. Because um, by saying his name, it gives him legitimacy, right? So we're going to brand him the Other, the outsider, right? He's, he's outside of our, our bounds. What I think that this whole text is going to be setting up um, is really a drama of, um, of different values. Uh, what values take priority and take precedence in the Jewish tradition? Truth or kindness is one uh, um, dichotomy, I think. Um, justice or compassion is another uh, uh, side of the, uh, another tension here. Justice or compassion. Um, 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 punishment or repentance is related to justice or compassion, but punishment or repentance. Are we going to go back and discuss this? Uh, each one is a whole day discussion. That's right. Um, and I think that they play out in the story. So I'm going to point them out as, as I think they come up. So the, 
truth is the is the is the setup of the story. So they go into heaven, and Rabbi Akiva says to them, "When you arrive at the stones of pure marble, say not water, water, for it is said, He that speaketh falsehood shall not be established before mine eyes." Okay, so when you go into heaven, you're going to see stones of pure marble, and they are going to be so bright and brilliant, it's going to look like there's water everywhere. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Don't say, oh my gosh, look, it's water. I can't uh, go any further. Right? It's not really marble. And if you say it, um, then you'll get kicked out of heaven or something bad will happen to you um, because of this verse. Right? Someone who, who says something false um, will not be established before my, eye, the, my eyes there is, is God's eyes. Um, someone who says something not true um, can't stand before God. Right? That's the premise that Rabbi Akiva starts with. And it doesn't matter if you um, are saying it um, um, uh, um, uh, willingly or not willingly, if you know that it's a falsehood, if you don't know that it's a falsehood, if you just say the falsehood, you can't stand before God. That's what Rabbi Akiva proposes. Ben Azai cast a look and died. So Ben-Azai looked at whatever this was in paradise and couldn't handle it. He died. Of him, scripture says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Ben-Zoma looked and became demented uh, or went crazy or something like that. Of him, scripture says, hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Okay, so... This is a very complicated text. We could spend days just trying to pull apart this text, but what I think is going on here is um, that there is that the, the, the beginning of this drama is about the nature of uh, of, of 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 truth, right? And truth can be a dangerous thing, right? It can be a dangerous thing to pursue. Um, uh, it can be a uh, it could be a distorting or dementing thing to pursue if you're if you're not prepared to. Uh, to deal with it or to handle it, right? And so Ben Azai looked deep into the heart of heaven um, and couldn't take it, right? Uh, it's hard to tell whether this is a good thing that he died or a bad thing. The, the proof text seems to suggest that it's a good thing, um, that, uh, that you know, maybe his soul just evaporated because he was so filled with divine light, who knows? Um, and Benzoma um, uh, um, is, I think, a better, uh, a clearer example um, because it shows that um, uh, that that truth can have a distorting effect on the person who learns it or experiences it, right? So this is a, a good example of uh, of uh, the the this tension that you have between t- truth and other values. Because um, if uh, if if truth is the highest value, um, you can see here. Let me rephrase that. You can see here that because of what happens to Benzoma. It's an indication that maybe truth is not the highest value, right? It has a, it can, uh, it, it can be a really damaging thing. I think he's saying something in moderation. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe heaven isn't in moderation. It's the fullness of it. Right. Right. So, um, so that's actually in the store in the version of this as a driven leaf. Um, what Milton Steinberg does is he's, he's, he he sets this up as a, uh, um, a, a drama of trying to discover truth. 
and he uh, he's you know he he really kind of sees um, Alicia Benabui as the instigator of it, wants to know the the real truth of God and the real truth of the world, and uh, in the process brings along his friends Ben Zoma and Ben Azai, uh, Ben Azai uh, in you know in, in I don't remember this, the the book all that well, but in the course of events dies. Um, ben Zoma goes crazy uh, in in the process, and uh, and uh, and Alicia Benabuya. Um, commits apostasy, right? Rejects Judaism, right? Uh, um, says that Judaism can't be true. Um, but uh, but the moderation thing is an uh, is an important point, right? Uh, that um, uh, that um, that the um, that the experience, even of uh, a, a direct experience of God, has to be tempered. Right. Tempered with or by what? Um, by a recognition that there's only so much that human beings can know or handle. So if you're experiencing God, how would the individual know where to stop before it's too late, too overwhelming, too, before one is stricken? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that's part of what Rebbe Akiva is trying to say to them here, um, uh, which is, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you uh, the the boundaries, the parameters um, at the onset, so you don't accidentally um, overstep. Um, okay, I don't want to get too deep into this story because it's a very complicated story. Um, Acher mutilated the shoots. Yeah. All right, he uprooted the plants. Is uh-huh. is sort of what what that means? He cut down the saplings, um, which uh, is also a very um, uh, vague statement um, is, is some kind of rabbinic idiom for committed apostasy. Um, yes. Well, it, it's, it, it's like um, entering a forest and don't go there. It's 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 right. these other prohibitions. It's just another. I think it's another way of saying yeah, don't go there. Right. He bulldozed. Right. He he tra- he tread where he shouldn't have tread. Um, and, uh, I, although I think that it actually refers to a part of the story that comes later, well, we'll see, but... Here it says, he, if you cut it down, he's preventing himself from going where he shouldn't be going. <sighs> Impossible. You can't cut it down unless you're there. Well, you're, you're cutting, you're, you're preventing yourself from going further. No, I, I, what I, how I read it is, is, um, that he was there... And overturned it, right? He plucked it out from the. He, he went to the. You know, you have this oh, image of the he garden. Went, he went to, right? the, to the gate, so to speak. Uh, all right, to the. Okay, and then destroyed the. Uh, right. Oh. Yeah. This he, reminds me of the four different people who were trying to do Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of this story. It's basically yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Like it's, one it went is. crazy. Yeah. And it's, one it, this died. This is the story. Oh, okay. This this this, this may be the story, right? Okay. This is uh the the older version of it. So the the Mishnah that uh, this is in one way or another commenting on um, uh, talks about you know uh, don't study uh, the Merkava which is uh, the the um, sort of mystical imagery of God's chariot which is the sort of source text for a lot of uh, Jewish mysticism right. so you maybe maybe could think of a version of the yeah. story yeah. yeah. Um, which is part of why, uh, the, in traditional Judaism, um, one isn't supposed to study Kabbalah until one is uh, 40 years old. Um, uh, um, it, right, and in, in part it's, it's because um, um, 
the Judaism isn't as concerned with um, the pure knowledge, the distillation of truth as it is with wisdom, which is knowledge um, mediated through experience, right? And so, um, so you know, the traditional is you're 40 and you have to be married with your kids and a male, right? Uh, but, but I think the, the intention of that is saying that, um, that you have to know life in order to be able to, to look at this, you know, pure wisdom that could actually, if you read it in a, from a certain perspective, if you read it di- divorced or detached from life, you just, you know, hold yourself up at the age of 18 in a library and started studying this stuff, it would just, it would dement you, right? Um, then you go to Paris and you go in the streets and you start fighting and, that, and right. demonstrating. Right. That's yeah, what? a wonderful I don't know if I said that before. I, I, um, I think I learned that or version of that definition from uh, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, um, who is one of the wisest yeah. people I know. Um, okay, Rabbi Akiva departed unhurt. All right, we're going to skip ahead because we're going to, now we, the, the text di- digresses a little bit to talk a little bit about Benzoma and Ben Azai. It doesn't talk about their ages, does it? It does not talk about their ages. We don't know how old. Oh, the Rebbe Akiva we know is yes. older. That's the, yeah, right? that's, I'm um, older. Right, so Rebbe Akiva was uh, 40, uh, was in his 40s before he even started learning to become a rabbi. I wonder if that's where the, you know, the... It, it may it may very well be it may very well be um, you know so so Rabbi Akiva was later uh, you know had uh, had life experience you know before he uh, started learning Torah um, and uh, what's that he was married he was married right so the, the marriage actually what <laughs> not home much not home well so no but that's actually the story of Rabbi Akiva is that uh, he uh, met his uh, uh, wife to be. He was 40 years old. He was a, uh, you know, um, a, a, a shepherd or something like that, and, um, a, you know, illiterate. Um, and his wife said, or his, his, the woman he met said, I will marry you um, if you uh, become a Torah scholar. Um, and so she gave him permission to go away from home for a few years. She learned to be an independent woman with her. <laughs> Maybe, all right, we can, we, can, we can interpret that whatever way you want, but anyway. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. Nobody told me about that. <laughs> um, no, but, that, but that's actually a really interesting point about the story, is that uh, we don't know the ages of the others, but we know for, uh, for sure that Rabbi Akiva, almost certainly Rabbi Akiva is the oldest of these four. So he could be 60. He could be 60 in the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, here. Um, sorry. Um, no, you're fine. Um, all right, so let's, we're going to skip ahead a little bit because um, um, we're not really as concerned with what happens to Benzoma or Benazai, but you can look on your own. We're going to skip to where page 93 here is. The pages kind of came out uh, cockeyed. Um, all right, so now the Talmud is going to get into what the, what the text means when it says that Acher mutilated the shoots. All right, now... It is some kind of uh, term for apostasy, although we'll see a little bit later in the story that I actually think it's referring... I think that the original kernel of the story is actually something very uh, brutal. Um, but Acher mutilated the shoots. Of him, Scripture says, Suffer not thy mouth to bring thy flesh into guilt. Right? What does that mean? Suffer not thy mouth to bring thy flesh into guilt. Well, it has to do with, I think, speaking something that you shouldn't. Right. Or doing something with your mouth that where it shouldn't be. 
Right, right. Uh, I, I think you, I think the first thing you said is is uh, is the is the right answer, right? Um, don't say something that's self-incriminating, right? I think is the te- contextual meaning of that verse. Um, and, but but moreover, right? Don't uh, um, uh, don't say something that is going to um, um, uh, um, cast dispersions on your character or, uh, or or come back to haunt you or come back to hurt you. And, uh, and, and so this is, I think, the, um, you know, the, the, um, the dividing line or the, um, uh, the, the proof text of this dichotomy that I set up at the beginning between, um, truth and kindness, right? Um, so just because something is true doesn't mean that you should say it, mm. right? And, um, uh, because there's a, there's a, maybe a higher value than truth, um, which is goodness, which is kindness, right? Which is, uh, um, uh, dignity, what? Rachmanis, Rachmanis, compassion, right? And, um, and so we, we have this, you know, a lot, right? You know, we, we sometimes celebrate, you know, like the people who, you know, tell it like it is, right? Or, you know, are, are, are bluntly honest. And there's sometimes a place for that. Um, but, uh, but, but really what we mean when we say that is, you know, it's a person who is, is, you know, tells the truth, but is kind of a jerk, right? Um, hurtful. Right. Hurtful. Does that mean, tell the truth, but someone to be jerk? No, come on. Does, does this, is this the exact translation from the Hebrew, suffer thy mouth to drink? Well, I mean, the, it, um, the direct translation is, it's, um, 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 yeah, let's get, it's like, um, I don't remember the actual Hebrew. Why is it so obscure? Why is it, is it so obscure? I mean, um, why? Let me find a Tanakh oh, here. Okay. Oh, that's okay. Um, we can go one. I don't it, want to hold you. Um, you keep going. I'll look for oh, Okay, thanks. Um, you should have brought one with me. Um, okay. Uh, it's uh, Stand up. it's uh, all detent. Ah, there you go. All right. So it's. Um, I mean, if you weren't here to tell me, Ecclesiastes, I would never know what that would be. Yeah, Ecclesiastes. Well, you 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 did uh-huh. know. Your first instinct of how to uh, interpret it was exactly right. Oh. <laughs> okay, so Ecclesiastes uh, five five. Um, so the Hebrew is Alti Tanit Picha. Lachati et besarcha, right? So don't uh, enable your mouth. Don't allow your mouth to convict your flesh. Is that the um, where this comes from? That's the verse. Yeah. The Hebrew is so much clearer than. Well, you know, this is like uh, um, you know King James, you know uh, Englishese. Um, here's the here's the uh, uh, this is probably like some I don't know where they get their uh, Bible to the, the, I mean the, this version of the Talmud that we're looking at is uh, the Sencino Talmud which was uh, early 20th century British um, but uh, here here's how um, art school translates that um, let not your mouth bring guilt on your flesh right don't say anything self-incriminating you you have the right to not incriminate yourself in court. Yeah. But that's not kindness. Self-incrimination is not... Well, well I mean, it's... kind to yourself, but it's... I don't think it's 
thought of that way, so I won't be biased. Right, I understand, but but so what that means is that there's a, a value in in the American legal tradition too that is um, um, in some ways, high, in some instances, higher than truth, which is. Uh, um, yeah, compassion to yourself, right? Uh, um, the, you know that that is an element of compassion in the system. Um, also, allows you to live with guilt if <laughs> if you choose not to incriminate yourself. That's true, um, but the system builds into it, right? That uh, um, um, you know, it could have said that you know we're we're interested in justice, we're interested in truth, and if you know something about yourself that would uh, help bring a conviction, you have to say it in court. Right, so that's what the Constitution could have said, right? Um, but it doesn't. Um, all right, so um, so how can, it, how can it encourage you to just live with guilt? No. It, I mean, it doesn't encourage you to. But in other words, how can it tell you not to um, say something that you've done and bring guilt upon yourself? It doesn't. But it says, um, but it says, don't speak anything that would put yourself. Right. So I'm not sure if I understand the, the question. Position. I mean, I'm not. I understand that it's good to have that right, but morally, how could it be something that you want someone to do? Just not, not confess that they've done something. We. How can it be that morally we don't want somebody to confess? Yes. Um. We give them permission here, and that's good. But I mean, is that really something? It's a directive, rather than like, the permission is the secondary thing. We take it, but it's a directive, basically. Don't incriminate. Right. Yourself. So, so um, in the Constitution, it's a right. You can invoke it if you want. Right. Here, it's actually a commandment. Don't in, don't uh, incriminate yourself. So, in other words, if you if you've done something just awful, you should just. Keep it to yourself because you might incriminate yourself. Um, I mean, in, in other words, if it might solve a problem, just keep it to yourself and maybe let, let another person be um, found responsible. No, I, I don't think it's saying uh, enable another person to be found responsible, but, and I don't think that it's, that it's necessarily, I mean, this is a really actually uh, um, interesting question that you're raising because I think that um, one of the themes of the story, um, as we'll see coming up, is uh, is tshuva, is repentance. And in order to repent, you have to um, acknowledge what you did wrong. Um, um, so I, I I don't think it's really talking about self incrimination in, in that way. I think it's it's talking about um, um, uh, saying something that will. That's not about what you did, right? But say, putting something out there that can bring harm to you, right? So, um, so in this case, we'll see what he says that brings harm to him, which is not self-incrimination, um, except for it reveals what he's thinking, right? So, um, so it's like he's not saying I committed murder. He's saying I think that there might be something about reality that's not what the rabbis are teaching. Right. Um, so, so that's what hurts him is that he, you know, gives voice to the thoughts in his head um, that are not um, that are not politically correct. I'm not sure I agree with all this. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe if we go further, I'll answer. Sure. Um, 
So it, I, all right, we'll, we'll go on. All right, what does it refer to? He saw that permission was granted to Metatron, who is uh, an archangel in uh, uh, later Jewish tradition, which is one of the reasons why uh, many scholars think that this is a later text. The other versions that we have of this story don't have this uh, business with uh, Metatron, who is the highest of God's angels, uh, but really was uh, an innovation of the Babylonian period. Um, he saw that permission was granted to Metatron to sit and write down the merits of Israel. So Metatron was given the job of uh, judging the Jewish people. Said he, said Acher, it is taught as a tradition that on high there is no sitting and no emulation and no back and no weariness. Perhaps God for, perhaps God forfend that there are two divinities. Right. So here we have the apostasy. Right. Maybe there is more than one God. Right. You see this um, uh, angel writing down the right, having the responsibility for for uh, rewarding and punishing uh, Israel, judging Israel. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, Acher very, I think, logically thinks maybe this means that, uh, God isn't the only power in heaven. Thereupon, they, the other angels, led Metatron forth and punished him with sixty fiery lashes, saying to him, Why didst thou not rise before him when thou didst see him? What are they saying to him, to Metatron? And done what? Wipe out the, uh, the person who said service. No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. or, or question him. No, I think it's saying, um, before he was able to see you, you should have known that he was going to be there. You should have known that he would have drawn the wrong conclusion. You should have gotten up and walked away so that he wouldn't see you do this and, and therefore be led astray, right? So it's, um, so you bear responsibility for his transgression. For Ahir's. For Ahir's transgression, exactly. Um, at the same time, permission was then given to him to strike out the merits of Ahir. So Acher also bears some responsibility, right? It's not only the the it's not only Metatron's fault; it's partially Metatron's fault. It's partially Acher's fault for um, it's not that he said something that was not politically correct. It's that he said something that uh, uh, he he gave voice to a thought that wasn't fully thought out. He gave voice to an opinion that wasn't uh, that that wasn't researched. He didn't have all the facts. He didn't have all the information. Right? This is the this is one of the challenges of truth. Is I can see the data, but it's just data until I know how to properly interpret it. That's why we have Nate Silver's blog now. We can read all the data. You, know, you guys don't know Nate Silver? No. Oh my gosh, Nate Silver is like the most important person now living. Is that Laurie's son? What? No, 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 no I don't he's, think so. He is a Nate Silver, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I don't he's think so, because Laurie is Silver's, isn't she? Yes, yes. Um, so Nate Silver is a statistician um, who uh, became very uh, popular in 2008, um, I think it was 2008, during the presidential election, 
for uh, very accurately predicting how the election was going to turn out based on statistical readings and things like that um, was even, it was picked up by the New York Times, uh, started writing a column for the New York Times, um, and uh, um, in 2012 um, was like the gold standard for uh, prediction for, for the election, and now has a blog, I think it's actually owned by ESPN of all companies now, but uh, a, a, a whole media company now called 538, which I don't know what the meaning of that is, um, but uh, with, with um, a handful of writers that, uh, that every day, um, you know, write articles about different statistical issues, right? So everything from sports to society to politics to, you know, um, so, but, so their, their job is to, is to, uh, get stories from the data and to, to act accurately portray what the data is telling you. What Akhir does is he, he sees the numbers, right? He sees what's happening and he jumps to the conclusion, right? So the, so the transgression is, is not that he said something that's not, I don't think it's, it's that he, you know, he, uh, formed an opinion that was, uh, you know, had academic integrity and intellectual honesty. I understand yeah. Um, why does it, why does it say he wiped out the merits? Mm. Demerits, I can understand. But the merits, why does he, in other words, he's wiped out completely? He's, he's, he's not, he's not wiped out completely, but all of his good deeds are wiped, wiped out completely. In other words, this one, uh, negative act outweighs all of the good that he may have done in his life. So he's eliminated from... From heaven. From he's heaven. kicked out of heaven, basically. That's what it means. Oh. Um, right? He, uh, he, any, any good that he's done is outweighed by this, by this one bad act, which is, a, which is really powerful. I mean, there's two things about it that, that mm -hmm. we can say. One of the things that we can learn, and this is a, an important lesson for anybody, is that, you know, a... Uh, uh, a reputation takes a lifetime to build, but can be destroyed in moments, right? And, uh, um, however, and what we'll see as the story goes on, um, it, I think, is never for anybody irredeemable. And that is, I think, the real sin that Acher has, is that he convinces himself that he's beyond redemption, right? Or he thinks that he's beyond redemption, right? And we have this, uh, uh, um, in, um, uh, in the text, we have we we can see why he thinks that a bot call, a divine voice, went forth and said, "Return ye backsliding children." It's a verse from Jeremiah, "Shuvu banim shovavim," except Acher. Right. So anybody can do tshuva except for Acher. Right. So that's the that's the premise of the story. Well, the, the setup of the story is that um, is that. Truth is paramount, and justice is paramount, right? And the and Acher is given a very strict judgment for saying something false, right? Um, and uh, and so therefore, you know, uh, lives his life um, in response to we'll see in response to those values that are set up at the beginning. But I think that those are not the values that win out by the end. Okay, so here's what happens. You turn to the next page, ninety four. Thereupon he said. Since I have been driven forth from yonder world, let me go forth and enjoy this world, right? Since I've been kicked out of heaven, I might as well enjoy life here, right? There is one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the results of a reliance on strict truth and strict justice is, um, is you have, when you have no capacity for change, 
uh, and, uh, and, and compassion and repentance, then you encourage potentially more sinful behavior. You know, you, there are people who say, well, you know, if you have too much forgiveness, too much compassion, too much repentance, then people will walk all over you. But that is, I think, not what's what, where, where the story is hinging here. The story is hinging in the other direction, which is if you're too strict, too just, um, uh, too focused on literal truth, um, then you create no incentive. Um, you remove any incentive for goodness and for change and for transformation. Right? That's that. You know, um, that's. Um, one of the, I think, um, and, and, you know, maybe one of the, um, um, actually, I don't know what I was going to say in that sentence, but the, but uh, um, it's it's one of the Christian critiques of uh, of the rabbinic tradition of the Jewish tradition is that you know in being so focused on laws, it creates too much of an opportunity for sin. Um, and, uh, and I think the response is that, uh, but it also creates the, res- the, the opportunity for tshuva. It al- also creates the opportunity for repentance. But here you have no capacity for repentance, strict justice. And so what happens is, um, Acher says, okay, well, fine. Well, I'm just going to do whatever I want then. Okay. So he, so Acher went forth into evil courses. The, the, uh, um, the language in the Talmud is, uh, tarbutara'a. Um, which means the evil culture. What's the evil culture in the time that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe idolatry. I think it's talking about Rome, right? He's, right, he's, 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 I'm going to go out and enjoy Roman life. Self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. I think that this is why, uh, they say that, uh, that, that one of the, you know, um, greatest statements of uh, apostasy in Judaism is Epicureanism, right? Uh, that uh, uh, Epicurus wasn't like you know this uh, um, you know um, uh, uh, you know insane pleasure seekers is sort of made out to be in popular literature, but um, but but it is a very materialistic philosophy, um, and uh, and and does in a way um, encourage the enjoyment of 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 this world because ultimately that's all there is. So that may be where the, it doesn't come out and say, let me be an Epicurean. Um, but, uh, but, but let me participate in the ethos of a culture that's inspired by Epicureanism, right? Yeah. Which is wrong. Black and white and no gray. Yeah. 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 I, I'm wonder, it's, I don't know the Hebrew, but I wonder if this is where, um, the driven from driven leaf came from. So the driven or driven leaf comes from actually this past week's Torah portion, um, which says you're going to be so um, afraid of, um, uh, you know, you're going to be so sinful and driven out from your land, and you'll be so afraid that even the sound of a driven leaf will strike you with fear. Um, Yeah, you'll be running away, right, always. Um, All right, so here's what he does. He went forth. I want to make sure, because we don't have a lot of time, but we have a lot of story. Okay, so he went forth, found a harlot, and demanded her. Or I think the, the language of the Hebrew is more like he hired her, okay? Um, that's not his sin, by the way. Oh. She said to him, are you not Elisha ben Abuya? Aren't you this famous rabbi? Right? How are you hiring a prostitute? But when he tore a radish out of its bed on the Sabbath and gave it to her, she said, it must be another. It must be Acher. Right? So, okay, now we have the origin story of his name. Right, he's he's another. He's an outsider. He must not be this guy because he's not because he's hiring a prostitute, but because he tears a radish out on Shabbat. Now, 
that might be where this idea comes from also, that he uprooted the shoots, tore out the shoots. Um, it might also come from a little bit later in the story. After his, but okay, so so now we have the origin of his, this is he apostasy, he, he rejected Judaism, you know, I don't care about what, what, uh, what what's going to happen to me because uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond redemption, so I can commit whatever sins I want, I can do whatever I want. After his apostasy, Acher asked Rebbe Meir a question. Okay, now I think we're getting into um, the heart for me of the story. So Rabbi Meir um, was a colleague of Acher's, both of whom were students of Rabbi Akiva. Okay, um, uh, Acher was sort of like a contemporary and a student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Meir was directly a student of Rabbi Akiva. So Acher was, or Alicia Benabuya was one of Rabbi Meir's teachers as well. So after his apostasy, Rebbe Meir and Acher are hanging out together. That's a pretty amazing statement because what do we know about somebody who commits apostasy? He's shunned. He's outside the community. Right. He's given the name Acher, right? He's an outsider. Right. So Rebbe Meir shouldn't be hanging out with him. Okay? Nevertheless, they're hanging out. And Acher asks Rebbe Meir a question saying to him, what is the meaning of the verse, God hath made even the one as well as the other? So Rabbi Meir is continuing to stay with his teacher and his friend, and they're having a conversation about Torah. He replied, it means for every, that for everything that God created, he created also its counterpart. He created mountains and created hills. He created seas and created rivers. Said Acher to him, Rabbi Akiva, your master did not explain it thus, but as follows. He created righteous and created wicked. He created the Garden of Eden and created Gehenna and Hell. Um, uh, everyone has two portions, one in the Garden of Eden and one in Gehenna. The righteous man, being meritorious, takes his own portions and his fellow's portion in the Garden of Eden. The wicked man, being guilty, takes his own portion and his fellow's portion in Gehenna. Reb Misharshia said, this is a later uh, insertion into the story, what's the biblical proof for this? In the case of the righteous, it is written, therefore in their land they shall possess double. In the case of the wicked, it is written, and destroy them with double destruction. Now, there are um, so many layers to this conversation that Rebbe Meir and, uh, and, and Alicia Benabuya are having here, but um, the, the, the nature of their debate is, um, you know, uh, well, so first, let's go back to the nature of Elisha's apostasy is the the conception of dualism, right? Maybe there are two divinities. And so Elisha asked Rameer Mayor a question, right? Here's a verse that seems to suggest a dualism, right? So how do you explain this, right? And Rabbi Mayer says that there are uh, that there are God created opposites in the world, right? God created dualities, right? So God's in control, but there are dualities in the world. So, so what, what Rabbi Meir, it seems to me, is trying to say to Elisha is, I'm going to show you why you were incorrectly interpreting what you saw and giving you the opportunity to see this interpretation and then do what? Rethink it. Rethink it. Do tshuva. And Elisha's response, Acher's response, is fatalistic, right? No, that's not how it works. So the interpretation is that God created righteous and God created wicked, right? And that's how you're stuck, right? You're stuck being righteous or you're stuck being wicked. And if you're righteous, you get double the portion in heaven. If you're wicked, you get double the portion in hell. 
Right? All right, let's go on a little bit. After his apostasy, Acher asked Rebbe Meir, what is the meaning of the verse? Gold and glass cannot equal it, neither shall the exchange thereof be vessels of fine gold. He answered, these are the words of the Torah, which are hard to acquire like vessels of fine gold and are easily destroyed like vessels of glass. Said Acher to him, Rebbe Akiva, your master did not explain it thus, but as follows. Just as vessels of gold and vessels of glass, though they be broken, have a remedy, even so a scholar, though he has sinned, has a remedy. That's what Elisha says back to Rebbe Meir, and Rebbe Meir now has him in a corner. So thereupon Rebbe Meir said to him, Then thou too can turn back, can have a remedy, right? So then thou too repent. And Acher replied, I have already heard from behind the veil, Return ye backsliding children, except Acher. Okay, so again we have a uh, uh, another story, and maybe a it may be a continuation of the previous story. Maybe it just be another tradition of Acher studying with Torah with Rabbi Meir after his apostasy, um, and, and another loaded conversation, right? About uh, about what you know um, about gold and glass, right? And uh, Rabbi Meir um, uh, gives an answer. Um, uh, that, uh, that, that maybe is a setup for Acher to give the other, uh, answer, the other, the other verse, I don't know. Um, um, but, uh, um, but Acher's response is very clearly, uh, it's not a surprise that Rebbe Meir then re responds back, right? You can repent too, because Acher's response, Alicia Benabudi's response is... But, but where does, where does he get the idea that the scholars... Though they have sinned, have a remedy. That comes. That comes from Acher's mouth. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. So, so I, I. It seems to me that uh, it could be that uh, Mayor set up Acher to give that interpretation, right? Um, because Rebbe Mayor should know that Rebbe Akiva, his teacher, explained it this other way, right? And. Um, 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 so here you have a, 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 I think, a very clear statement, right? And I think this is a shift in the text, right? It's a shift in the story. Before in the story, we have um, strict justice, right? Strict truth. And here we have an, a, 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 um, a very clear rabbinic tradition that strict justice and strict truth um, are not the end of the story, right? The end of the story is you can always change your mind. You can always change your, your thoughts. You can always learn new things. You can always change your ways, right? Acher is still stuck in the earlier modality, right? Where, where, where he thinks, there's no hope for me anymore. And Rabbi Meir is saying to him, you're wrong. There is still hope for you, right? Go, let's keep going in the story. Our rabbis taught, once Acher was riding on a horse on the Sabbath, and Rabbi Meir was walking behind him to learn Torah at his mouth. So Rabbi Meir still thinks that, that his teacher and his friend um, has the capacity and the ability to, uh, to, to be a, a, a teacher of Torah. Rabbi Meir hasn't given up on Acher. Said Acher to him, Meir, turn back, for I have already measured by the paces of my horse that thus far extends the Sabbath limit. In other words, there's only a certain amount you can travel on the Sabbath. Um, uh, uh, Acher's riding on a horse on the Sabbath, which you're not allowed to do, but Acher apparently doesn't care about Shabbat anymore. Um, but Acher cares about Rebbe Meir's observance of Shabbat. 
And so he's counting the footsteps of his horse and saying, we're at the Sabbath boundary. Turn back. Right? There is still clearly um, good in, um, in Elisha ben Abuya. Right? Because if he really didn't care, if he really was as evil as the text is claiming that he is, right, uh, he would, uh, if he really thought it was not a real thing, he would let Rebbe Meir keep on going. Because who cares, right? Rebbe Meir replied, thou too go back. Right? And that's a loaded statement, of course, meaning you can turn around and, and not cross the Sabbath boundary yourself. Right, Just because you violated Shabbat before doesn't mean you have to violate Shabbat now. But the term, term turn back is also the same term for tshuva, turn back. And Acher answered, Have I not already told you that I have already heard from behind the veil, return ye backsliding children except Acher? Right? This is how damaging it can be to um, uh, to count somebody out, to exclude somebody, to say you have uh, no place here, you have no business here, you have no room in the there's no room in the tent for you, right? Because it it removes the possibility of continued dialogue and continued conversation and change and transformation of the person, and we'll see that going forward. Uh, uh, so Rabbi Mayer prevailed upon him and took him to a schoolhouse. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back to Torah if it kills me, right? So I'm gonna take you to the to the schoolhouse. And Acher said to a child, recite for me thy verse. Right? So what, 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 what are you learning in the Torah today, young, young whippersnapper? The child answered, Oi. <laughs> there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. <laughs> right? That's what the child is learning. Right? Meaning, if you're bad, you're going to rot in hell forever. Right? He then took him to another schoolhouse. Acher said to a child, recite for me thy verse. He answered, for though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. Meaning what? Same thing. Right. You know, if you sinned, there's nothing you can do about it. Right? That's the verse that he's studying. He took him to yet another schoolhouse, and Acher said to the child, Recite for me thy verse. He answered, And thou, thou art spoiled. What doest thou, and thou that thou clothest thyself with scarlet, that thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, that thou enlargest thine eyes with paint? In vain dost thou make thyself fair, etc. Right. In other words, the metaphor for you know you could do tshuva, you could like keep the commandments, but if you're rotten at the core, it's not going to do you much good. But the fourth one is always the charm. Well, all right, so. I wish. So he took him to yet another schoolhouse. But you see what's happening. He's going, I mean, the, the Talmud is, is constructing the story, right? He's going to school. The, the, these students could have been studying anything in the Torah. They're choosing to be studying, or right, the, uh, to be studying these, these harmful and painful verses. They could have easily been studying the text that Rabbi Meir was studying with Rabbi, with, with, uh, Elisha ben Abuya, right? And these students are using Torah as a weapon against Elisha. Right? That there's nothing you can do. If you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right? He took him to yet another schoolhouse until he took him to 13 schools, all of them quoted in similar vein. When he said to the last one, Recite for me thy verse, he answered, But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, etc.? That child was a stutterer. So it sounded as though he answered, but to Elisha, God said, 
right? So in other words, he, Elisha heard him say that, 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 uh, instead of the wicked, he heard Elisha, right? So he heard, not only is this verse saying you have no hope, but it's about you, right? Uh, about you personally, right? Some say that Acher had a knife with him, and he cut him up and sent him to the 13 schools. So that, I think, is also potentially, that 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 version of the story comes up in a lot of the other um, uh, places that this story shows up in rabbinic literature, uh, and maybe the origin of that phrase, Acher, uh, tore up the plants. The story's origin may be that you had this rabbi that at one point or another um, snapped and killed children. Oh. Um, um, or it could be, it's hard to say, um, textual scholarship of these texts is very hard. It's hard to know what's sometimes what the oldest layer is and what the latest layer is, and if the oldest layer is actually the most accurate layer, right, of the story. Um, um, but anyway, that's a tradition, that uh, that that that, uh, um, that um, uh, Elisha cut up this kid who uh, um, who said it, and some say that he had said, it, had I a knife in my hand, I would have cut him up, right? So he was so angry that I would have murdered that kid, right? Um, but let's put his, um, let's put his, um, um, action or, or, or thought of action aside, because you have here um, what the the uh, a recurrence of what happens earlier in the story, which is um, a Torah being used as a weapon of exclusion and a weapon of of hurt. Right when it's also possible, as you can see from the conversation that Mayer has with Alicia Betabuya, that Torah can be a uh, a tool for inclusion. A tool for compassion, a tool for repentance, right? And you can use the same verse of Torah and the same chapter of Torah in each of those different ways, right? And it's in some ways a choice of the reader to um, to, to to use Torah. So he could have gone to the schoolhouse and he could have asked for a verse, and those children could have given him different verses, right? These children were being taught and were reciting um, a Torah of pain. It's a choice of the writer, not the reader. A choice, right, exactly. Well, I mean, it's a choice of the reader in the sense of if you're reading a verse, you have a choice of how to interpret that voice, verse. Um, okay. When Acher died, they said, the other rabbi said, let him not be judged, nor let him enter the world to come. Let him not be judged because he, because he engaged in the study of Torah nor let him enter the world to come because he sinned. Okay, so there's a uh, uh, um, uh, a debate among the rabbis, right? Uh, um, uh, a, a little bit of a conflict about what to do with Elisha ben Abuya, um, because he's, he, he, wasn't, he was outside of the rabbinic circle in some ways, so uh, he shouldn't enter the world to come as if they had the key. Um, he shouldn't enter the world to come, but we shouldn't judge him because he studied Torah, right? He, he, so... It, from their point of view, even though earlier in the story we saw that uh, that that uh, Metatron wiped out his merits from the human perspective, he still had plenty of merit, right? And so we're not going to judge him, right? We're going to um, uh, right. So here you have uh, uh, again, right? The, we're saying that part of the story is um, about a dichotomy of of justice versus compassion. Here you have um, a uh, one. Um, 
uh, possibility in that spectrum of justice versus compassion, right? And uh, and uh, so you have um, a lack of strict justice on one hand, we're not going to judge him, but also a lack of compassion on the other hand, um, that we're not going to let him into heaven. Rabbi Mayer said, it were better that he should be judged and that he should enter the world to come. When I die, I shall cause smoke to rise from his grave. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like something from hell. Yeah, I think that you're right. Um, so if you look at the uh, footnote here, number 10, i.e. is a sign that he was judged and punished for his sin. In other words, Rabbi Meir said it's better that he should be judged, right? It's better that he should have some kind of closure in his life. Otherwise, he'd be in limbo. In limbo, don't, exactly. Don't have a limbo. <laughs> Apparently, we do. Uh -oh. Apparently, we do, right? Which is, uh, um, you know, he'll just be rotting in the earth, right? Neither and, here nor there. Right, either neither here nor there. But the mayor said it's 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 at least better for him to have some kind of closure, right? Rabbi Yochanan said, "What a mighty deed to burn his master! There was one among us, and we cannot save him. If I were to take him by the hand." Who would snatch him from me? Said he, when I die, I shall extinguish the smoke from his grave. So you have Ruby Mayer taking him part of the way, right? Which is, I'm going to let him be judged. And Rabbi Yochanan said, that's good, right? You, you demonstrated that, that, we have, that, that we on earth have power to help change and transform uh, decisions um, in the heavenly realm. And if that's true... Right? If I can let him be judged, then we can also get him into heaven. Right? So I'm going to take him by the hand, and no one's going to be able to take him from me if I take him by the hand. Right? This is very much a continuation of, uh, of, of where Rabbi Meir is with Elisha earlier in the story. Right? Which is that, um, that the, the capacity for transformation is almost entirely removed if someone is completely kicked out, right? If someone, right, that's the danger of tough love, right? The danger of tough love is that someone is so beyond uh, repair that they just say, screw it, right? Forget it. And the response that the text is coming to, I think, is that, the, that, that repentance is a higher virtue than punishment. Compassion is a higher virtue than justice. And the only way to enable those things is to actually stay with somebody, to take them by the hand, to remain with them, to walk with them, to learn with them, to study with them. It doesn't mean you have to approve of everything that they do. right? It doesn't mean that you have to support everything that you do, but the relationship should stay intact. Be there. Be there. Be there. When Rabbi Yochanan died, the smoke ceased from Acher's grave, right? So what Rabbi Yochanan tried to do worked, right? Acher ended up going to heaven. The public mourner began his oration concerning him thus, even the janitor could not stand before thee, O master, right? Um, in other words, um, there, there was no one that could uh, stop Rabbi Yochanan from bringing Acher into heaven. But that's not the end of the story. And we have a little bit more of the story. So if you'll permit me, I know we're a little bit over time. If you'll permit me, it's a, it's a long story, I said. So Acher's daughter once came before Rabbi. So Rabbi is Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the, uh, the, um, the head of the rabbis um, and the editor of the Mishnah. Okay? 
And she said to him, O oh, master, support me. In other words, I have nothing, right? I was the daughter of an outcast and an outsider, um, and uh, everybody abandoned uh, me after my father died. Will you please help me? He asked her, Whose daughter are you, O oh, unnamed woman who's standing before me? She replied, I am Acher's daughter. Said he, Are any of his children left in the world? Behold, it is written, He shall have neither son nor son's son among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. In other words, his whole line was supposed to be wiped out, right? He, uh, Rebbe is operating from the earlier realm in the story of, there's supposed to be strict justice on Acher, he's an outsider. And they would have killed his children? I don't know about killed his children, but he's the, but his children were all supposed to die out, right? Um, he's not supposed to have anybody still around. This is one place where it's good enough to get that in Washington. Maybe, yeah. Mm. Right, um, right, right. Exactly. The verse says, "Son or son's son." Right. So, uh, so uh, maybe not. And, you know, I I hear a lot of overtones of Star Wars in the story too. Right. It's about um, you know, is Darth Vader beyond redemption? Right. Is he beyond turning back to the light side? Turns out that. I don't want to spoil Return of the Jedi for anybody, but uh, it turns out that he's not, right? Um, and, uh, um, you know, they think that all the Jedi are supposed to be wiped out, right? But here's, you know, Luke Skywalker and, uh, um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and Leia um, who, um, uh, who, who remain. She answered, remember his Torah and not his deeds. In other words, you don't have to um, only remember the bad of my father. You can acknowledge that he did some bad and that he uh, that there were things that he did that were wrong, but he also had a lot that he did that was right. Remember his Torah and not his deeds. Forthwith, a fire came down and enveloped Rabbi's bench. Good thing or bad thing to happen to Rebbe? Uncomfortable for sure. Uncomfortable for sure, right? God doesn't send a lightning bolt on you unless you're doing something wrong, right? So there's a turn in God in the story. God now also acknowledges that dealing with somebody with um, with, with strict justice, um, with strict truth, right, um, um, with without compassion, only punishment is the wrong approach, right? Rebbe wept and said, if it be so on account of those who dishonor her, how much more so on the account of those who honor her? Right? So, I need to, uh, to do what? Forgive. Rethink. Rethink, right? Forgive. Um, maybe not entirely forgive Alicia Benabuya, but not punish his daughter for his father's sins. And not consider his father's her father's sins to totally outweigh any good that he did. There's still um, there's still redeeming qualities here. But what about unto the seventh generation? Right? The children should uh, be punished for their parents' sin, or um, it's it's the the tenth generation. Oh, uh, um, uh, so uh, no, sorry, um, the third generation. Um, his daughter is the second. Generation. I yeah. know, but so. So there, there are a couple things about that. I mean, one is that um, is that the the person who um, accounts the the parents' sin on the children um, to the third and fourth generation is God, not people. You are not allowed to do that. God has the prerogative to do that if God chooses to. 
but you're not allowed to hold somebody accountable for their parents' sin. When it says, remember his Torah, the way he taught them. That's another use of the word Torah. Right. Which I think means remember the remember the good things that he brought into the world, right? Um, uh, and remember the good things that he did. Remember the values that he that that he lived by, right? Clearly, even though he uh, stopped observing uh, Torah, he was still a good friend to Mayer, right? He was uh, he was still um, uh, trying to remain close. He was still um, there's a there's a real pathos to to Alicia. Um, so uh, so. Um, uh, don't remember all the bad things he did at the exclusion of all the good things that he did. Okay? So, that's not the end of the story either. Okay? How did Rebbe Meir learn Torah at the mouth of Acher? The Talmud now asks, right? How, how, how was it that Rebbe Meir uh, didn't give up on, on Elisha ben Abuya? Behold, Rava bar bar said that Rabbi Yochanan said, What is the meaning of the verse? For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This means that if the teacher is like an angel of the Lord of hosts, they should seek the law at his mouth. But if not, they should not seek the law at his mouth. Right? That's a that's a supposed to be a proof text for why he shouldn't have been learning with Elisha Benabuya. Oh. Rish Lakish answered, Rabbi Meir found a verse and expounded it as follows Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart unto my knowledge. It does not say unto their knowledge, but unto my knowledge. In other words, you can learn Torah from any source, but you have a responsibility to interpret it in uh, in in a healthy way, right? So, um, which is uh, um, in part what Elisha's sin was in the first place, right? Elisha was uh, um, was was learning the facts, but but failing in the interpretation or in the application the of them. Maya's gone. What? The Maya's gone. Right, and right. So, unto my knowledge, is interpret the Torah. Um, interpret teachings uh, according to what you know of God, right? Um, which is which? Which goes back to this idea that that um, that that you have the choice of um, of how you're going to read Torah. You can either read Torah as a, as a salve for healing, or you can read Torah as a poison for killing, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and so Rabbi Meir's response um, is. Um, I can I can distill Torah from this source, um, and 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 utilize it for holy purpose. Should the ca- should you basically be capitalizing the my knowledge? No, it's the my there isn't God. That's it's, what I'm asking. It's our interpretation. What we like. I think it could be either. I think right. it, I think it could be either. I think it's open to interpretation. Well, then it should be capitalized. <laughs> Maybe. Uh-huh. Um, so if it's not the the clearly the, the interpreter uh, um, uh, of uh, this is where is it? it's from uh, Proverbs. So my knowledge uh, maybe the the the, um, um, the speaker of Proverbs, the narrator of King Solomon, whoever the speaker of Proverbs. So it's a father talking to his son, right? So um, um, so so I- I interpret things the way that that uh, that that I'm telling you to interpret things. Um, all right, I don't want to get too stuck on that. Rabbi Chanina said, he deduced it from here. So another possibility. Oh, hearken, uh, O oh daughter, uh, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house, etc. Where are we? I'm on page 98 now. These verses contradict one another. Okay. There is no contradiction. In the one case, scripture refers to an adult, in the other to a child. When Rabbi Dimi came to Babylon, he said, in the West they say, 
Rebbe Mayer ate the date and threw the kernel away. Okay, so that I think is the the conclusion of that idea that Rebbe Mayer was able to um, to uh, distill what was the wheat from the chaff, what was the what was good Torah from bad Torah that uh, Alicia was saying, the fruit, right, the fruit from the pit, right. Um, so what 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 we're seeing here is that is that uh, this this. Uh, you know this uh, this strict line between uh, truth and falsehood, between uh, uh, between justice and compat. Um, these are uh, not fair distinctions. That uh, the same source can give you good things and can give you bad things. Right? And Rabbi Mayer is able to maintain the relationship um, and um, and and uncover goodness and truth from within the context of that relationship and know that there's some things that he can put aside. Okay. Um, let's uh, skip ahead a, the, the, through the next paragraph, and then this is the conclusion of the story, okay? Rabba Barshila once met Elijah. He said to him, What is the Holy One, blessed be he, doing? He answered, He utters traditions in the name of all the rabbis. But in the name of Rebbe Mayer, he does not utter. So God, what is God up to? God is uh, sitting and studying Torah. He is repeating all the teachings of all the rabbis, except for Rebbe Mayer. Rebbe Mayer, by the way, um, that's a lot of teachings, uh, because uh, Rebbe, who we saw before, who uh, learned his lesson with Alicia Benabuya's daughter about being compassionate, um, Rebbe, Rebbe was Rebbe Mayer's student, right? Um, so this is a lot of teachings, right? Because Rebbe is the editor of the entire Mishnah. So a lot of the uh, opinions in the Mishnah are Rebbe Mayer's. Rabba asked him, why? Why does God not uh, teach Rebbe Mayer's teachings? Mm -hmm. Because he learned traditions at the mouth of Acher. Said Rabba to him, but why? Rebbe Mayer found a pomegranate. He ate the fruit within it and the peel he threw away. Right. In other words, um, just because Rebbe Mayer learned from Acher, God's not going to uh, teach any of the teachings of Rebbe Mayer. Rebbe, he answered. Now he says, God listened to this. God heard this conversation, and God said, "Oh, that's a good point." Now he says, "Mayer, my son says, when a man suffers, to what expression does the Shekhinah, does God give utterance? My head is heavy. My arm is heavy." If the Holy One, blessed be he, is thus grieved over the blood of the wicked, how much more so over the blood of the righteous that is shed? The conclusion of the story takes us back to the beginning of the story. Now, the beginning of the story has God doling out strict justice to, uh, to Elisha ben Abuya, and, and the conclusion of the story, we have uh, a, an imagined, I guess, conversation um, about what God is is doing, and God learning a lesson about the the, the fallacy of strict justice. That uh, that you can that you can learn from any source. You can distill wisdom from uh, from from any source. Um, you can distinguish good from bad. Um, by virtue of experience, by virtue of goodness, by virtue of kindness, by virtue of compassion. And so what the, the, the teaching of Rabbi Mayer's that God ends up repeating is an amazing one. 
when a person is in pain, what happens to God? God says, Oi, I'm in pain too. This, I think, is an incredible culmination of the story. Because earlier in the story, Elisha is clearly in pain. And God has no response. But ultimately, God even learns a lesson. Which is that people's pain should not be left untended to. That justice always has to be tempered by compassion. That punishment is less important than forgiveness and repentance. Say that again. That punishment is less important than forgiveness and repentance. That openness is always preferable to being closed. And it takes a lot of pain and a lot of suffering through the course of the story to learn this lesson, but ultimately even God learns it. And if God, who is more or less, according to uh, the rabbinic tradition, uh, perfect and unchanging, if even God can learn the lesson and change, how much the more so each of us, that we can be open to forgiveness, that we can be uh, um, uh, um, uh, open and flexible and supple to um, uh, to uh, relationships even with people who are troubled that we can know for ourselves that we are never too far gone that we always have a pathway back as Mayer says even you even you too turn around and the truth is that for each of us we often think that there, there are times or places and things in life and we're just like too set in our ways they're, they're, we, we can't change. We're, you know, we're, we're too old. We're, we've been doing things. It's, 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 you know, we, it, it's better to like, you know, uh, keep face and keep doing things the way that we've been doing it than to, uh, than to, than to turn around. And the story I think says that you are never too far gone to break script and to turn around and change. And the best way to, uh, to do that to enable other people to do that and to do that for ourselves is to stay in relationship. You can be the impetus for others to change and others can be the impetus for you to change. So what we learn from Judaism's greatest heretic, unfortunately, he didn't really get to learn in his life. But we, in reading his story, and I think the Talmud is setting up the story this way, is to learn something about failure, friendship, and forgiveness. May we be able to have the strength to do that in our life and in our living.